Matthew 16. If you're a regular with us, you know that we've been going through the book of Matthew now for a couple of years, and you may think, come on, Jeff, uh, you're not going to take a break from Matthew. It's Easter. Uh, Well, I think when you see the text, you'll realize that we don't need to take a break from Matthew because of the content in this particular passage. So last week, we finished in chapter 16 through verse 20. In a moment, I'm going to back up and catch verse 20 for context's sake, add it in, and then we'll move forward three new verses in our text this morning. Here's the background. You ready? So we're getting ready to read the Word of God. I would invite all of us to be inviting the Lord to speak to you this morning. Um, by way of confession and transparency, I'll, I'll tell you, as I have already been telling the Lord multiple times, I don't know what it is. I'm feeling a little bound this week, a little bound up, just being real. And I don't know what it is. I'm probably not the only pastor that feels this. There's almost this expectation on Easter to, you know, give something extra and produce results, right? And my theology knows, Jeff, you have never and can never produce any results that matter. And so it is all up to him. And so I have been reinforcing that over and over. And so I just want to do what the Lord says. I have a basic, basic message. When you read the text, you'll say it lends itself to a basic message. But I want the Lord, because I know we've got some veteran Christians and some new Christians and some that have been Christian for five or ten years, all in between. There's some sitting here this morning, some watching online. You're not yet a Christian. Some very well may become a Christian today. Unfortunately, some will never become a Christian. And you'll realize within the course of this message what happens to those. And so I'm realizing that in my mind. There's all of this, and within myself, I can't meet the need of all of these types of people. And so what we're going to do is just stick to the Word of God, and he who wrote it will have to apply it as he sees fit. Here's the text. Are you ready? Here's the background. Jesus and his disciples now are just a few months, apparently, away from him dying on the cross. They're in the northernmost part of Palestine. It's just the 13 of them. He has asked them, who do people say that I am? These huge crowds that come out, what's the word on the street? They started firing back answers. Some think that you're John the Baptist. Some think you're Elijah because Elijah's supposed to come back before the Christ comes back. Others think you're Jeremiah. There was this belief that Jeremiah would also come back before the Messiah came. And then others think that you're one of the other prophets, reincarnated, rebrought back, revived, and back among us. Bottom line, there's this enormous groundswell of enthusiasm. These people know they're on the, on the doorstep of something amazing that is happening. Jesus then says, but who do you, who do you all say that I am? Peter, usually the spokesman for the group and the first to speak often, spoke. And here's what he said. That's what they say. Who do you say that I am? Peter says, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. You're the Messiah. Is what that means. You're the Messiah. You're the Christ. You're the anointed one that's been promised to us, the one we've been expecting, that's going to be the great deliverer, the great king. You're him, but you're more than that. We're realizing that you're also, in addition to being the Christ, you're the very son of the living God. We weren't planning on that. Now we know that the Christ is also the son of the living God. You're all of that. I know that to be true. Jesus, no doubt smiling and with joy, pronounces blessing on Simon Peter. He says, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, 
Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, literally. Peter didn't figure it out. No human being came and told Peter. Even Jesus himself had not told this to Peter. He says, my Father who is in heaven has revealed this to you. You are blessed. And then with that, we read verse 20. Look at it. Again, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And he pronounces blessing for this realization and this revelation that has come to Peter. He's right. Verse 20, though, Jesus says, Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Who do you say that now? You're the Christ, the Son of the living God. He strictly charged the disciples to tell no one, don't tell anyone that I'm the Christ. Verse 21, from that time, so here's our main text today, from that time, meaning from this time multiple times now moving forward, if we're going this way on the timeline, here they are. This is the first time he's going to do this, but he's going to do it two or three more times between him and Passover week where he will be on the cross. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must, that word stood out to me and that's going to dominate. We're going to reverse our order today. We're going to do verse 21 last this morning. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem. Well, yeah, of course. Passover's coming. Of course you're going to go. No. He must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes. Notice those three words. The elders, these are the most influential men in Israel. The chief priests were mainly, unfortunately, the politicians. These were the Sadducees. But they were also very religious. And then the scribes, these are mainly the Pharisees. These are the ones who knew the law of God backwards and forwards. The chief priests, unfortunately, only accepted the first five books. They're normally enemies with each other. You, you guys see what happens in our legislative system. We have these divisions, and we have some that are kind of in the middle, some on extreme one side, some extreme on the other side. Here he's just laid out who's going to cause him to suffer. He began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed. And on the third day, be raised. Apparently, because of what happens in the verses following, they don't even hear the last thing Jesus says. All they heard were the first two or three things. Going to Jerusalem, going to suffer and be killed. They, the last doesn't even, apparently, they, they've, he's lost them at that point because they don't even hear the, the last thing. As evidenced by Peter, verse 22. And Peter took him aside. I don't know fully what that means. I don't know if they were already standing or Peter calls him over or if Peter grabs him by the arm. In my mind, I'm assuming Peter has somehow put his hands on the Lord. Let this sink in. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Peter, who the Lord's just put this commendation, who's just received this revelation from God and made this great confession. Peter takes the Lord aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. Do you understand? This will never happen to you. And as fiery as that is, verse 23, but he, Jesus, turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. 
This is within seconds of what we've been studying the last couple of weeks. You guys realize, I mean, all these wonderful things and you're so blessed. Literally seconds later, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. Here's why. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. You're thinking like Peter. You're not speaking the words of God. You don't know a thing what you're talking about. And put your, get your hand off my arm. I, I added that. That's not really in there. Don't you ever touch me like that? And that's not what he said. Jesus could get heated and he would still be righteous and not be in sin by doing that. Would you notice four, three things this morning? Number one. Remember, we're going to come back to verse 21 as our third thought this morning. Number one, Peter's ignorance is on full display. Peter's ignorance is on full display. I had us back up to verse 20. Isn't that a surprising command? I rushed through that at the end last week. Think about this. If in order to go to heaven, you have to, listen, you have to know who Jesus is. If in order to go to heaven, you have to know who Jesus is, and they know who Jesus is, they know he's the Christ, then why is Jesus telling them not to tell anyone? Strictly tell no one. Jesus doesn't even go around telling everyone that he's the Christ. Again, as I said last week, until like chapter 27. Then he comes forth, and that's between him and Pilate where he acknowledges that. Tell no one. That is an absolutely surprising command. Get what I'm about to say. But I dare say a hundred times more shocking than that. Tell no one? A hundred times more shocking than that is what he says in verse 21. That blew them away, but verse 21, from that time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed. That's where he lost them. Can I say it this way? Jesus' disciples at this point is evidenced by Peter and moving forward all the way. They will not understand until chapter 28. So for the next several chapters, they're going to be left in the dark, even though he's going to say this over and over. They're not going to understand all that he just said, but if you want to take a note, it is not because he uses cryptic language. Jesus is not using cryptic language, veiled, hidden language. By the way, he's done that. As you're writing that, kind of write that and listen at the same time. This is not the first time Jesus has alluded to what's coming is suffering and death. Did you, have you caught it? There's, been, there's several. I'm going to point out two. Back in chapter 12, 9, verse 15, right before that, Jesus was asked, Hey, we fast, disciples of John the Baptist, the Pharisees fast. We notice that your disciples don't fast. Why is that? Jesus' answer was... Can the guests, can the wedding guests mourn while the bridegroom is with them? The implied answer is, his disciples are the wedding guests. He's the bridegroom. They don't mourn while the bridegroom is with them. But then he says, but when the bridegroom is taken away, they shall fast. I, I don't know if anyone's paying attention. What does that mean when the bridegroom's taken away? What, if he's, what does it mean he's going to be? They missed it. Back in chapter 12, verse number 40, we'll not turn there. A group came up and says, show us a sign to prove who you apparently are trying to make out that you are. Would you give us a sign? Remember, Jesus says, no sign will be given to this generation except I will give you this one sign, the sign of the prophet Jonah. As Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, here it comes, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. They had to wonder, what is he talking about? 
three days in the heart of the earth, did they not put it together? I would remind you, again, I don't know the exact order. On another occasion, Jesus was down in Jerusalem. This is key because he's in Jerusalem. They want a sign, and he tells them, here's a sign. Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. That was chapter 2, verse 19 of John. So it was definitely early on in the ministry. Destroy this temple, and in three days... They think he means the temple of Solomon that's been replenished by Herod. And they said, are you kidding? This thing took 46 years to get replenished. Do you think you're going to rebuild it in three days? And we know that Jesus was not talking about that temple. He's talking about the temple of his body. In John chapter 3, he tells a man named Nicodemus, he says, as Moses lifted up the brazen serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, and that he'll draw all men unto him. All these veiled things, but never like this, of this passage... You have Matthew, Mark, Luke, Matthew, Mark, and Luke all talk about this. Listen to what Mark 8.32 writes. He says, verse 21, he said this plainly, plainly. And you're thinking, how plainly did he tell them? Look at verse 21. This is how plainly. We'll look at it. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed, and on the third day be raised. Crystal clear. So then we ask ourselves, how do they miss it? How do they not understand? If he said it that clearly, why don't they just get on board? Let me borrow from J.C. Ryle. He writes the following. Get it. He says, like most of the Jews, they could form no idea of a suffering Messiah. There's a little thing floating right there, and it's bothering me, and I got it. Did anybody else see that? Anna did. She and I were being driven crazy by this. Anyway. Listen to that line again. So why did they not get it? Ryle writes, like most of the Jews, they could form no idea of a suffering. Like literally, they couldn't make themselves come to a conclusion that the Messiah would suffer. Why? He continues. They did not understand that the 53rd chapter of Isaiah must be literally fulfilled. They did not see that the sacrifices of the law were all meant to point them to the death of the true Lamb of God. They they weren't getting, they were blind to it. What was the problem? He concludes by saying, they thought of nothing but the second glorious coming of Messiah. Can I add to that? They didn't have a clue there was a second coming of Jesus the Christ. They assume it's one thing. They're reading their Bible. They love all these aspects of this king and kingdom and Israel being raised to glory. And he rules and reigns and they're victorious. They love that part. They totally miss this section that he refers to in verse 21. Just gloss right over it. Look at verse 22. Here we see Peter's ignorance on display. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never, do you hear his emotion? This shall never happen to you. Think with Peter. I'm telling you guys, it's it's so hard for us to appreciate. Most of us, from the time we were a child, have been told Jesus died on a cross. So it's programmed into us. It was not on their radar. Here's his thinking. No, I know who you are. What you're saying is impossible. Here's why. God won't let this happen. God will not let this happen. Far be it. There's you and there's what you just said. Far be it from you. It will never happen. That's his thought. 
Write this quote down from Carson. D.A. Carson writes that Peter, here's the strange thing. He confesses that Jesus is the Christ, obviously back in verse 16. But then he speaks in a way implying that he knows more of God's will than the Messiah himself. How strange. Oh, you're the Messiah. You're the Christ. You're the son of the living God. Jesus then follows that up and says, guys, here's what I must do. Oh, no, no. Let me tell you what you must do. Hold on. You just called me the Christ. Right. By the way, this is how a lot of Christians are. Oh, I believe you, Lord, and I surrender to you until I come across a part of the Bible that I don't like, and then I'm not going to follow you. Don't be that kind of Christian. Don't be a Peter. Number two, in verse 23, we notice the following. Jesus states his surrendered resolve. Jesus states his surrendered resolve. What's he surrendered to? Obviously, he surrendered to the plan of God. As I've already alluded to, ladies and gentlemen, verse 22 and 23 is a very heated exchange. It's heated. Peter's rebuke of Jesus is very stern and it is intense, but Jesus' language in verse 23 is far more severe even than Peter's stern rebuke of him. Look at verse 23 with your eyes and in your mind picture not just what Jesus is saying, Whatever Peter looked like, okay, I have in my mind, he's kind of a big guy, he's kind of broad shoulder, kind of muscular, he's a fisherman, he's used to pulling nets and rowing boats. I mean, he's, he's, he's the kind of guy that he commands everybody's respect. Uh, there's something about it. He has a big old personality as well. Picture his face as this happens. So he's just told the Lord, far be it from you, this shall never happen to you. But Jesus turned and says to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. I'm picturing, I'm picturing him doing like something like, his head goes back and he's like, oh. looking to the other side, like, hey, hey, he don't mean what, whoa, whoa, what are you doing? Satan, what are you talking about? I'm on your side. And that's what he thinks. He's shocked as Jesus is speaking to him. Last week we learned this, that Jesus says, Your name, Simon, son of Jonah, I'm naming you Peter. Petros means stone. Peter, you know what you are? You're a stone, but right now you are a stone of stumbling. You are a stumbling block to me. Literally, here's what he's saying. Peter, you're in my way. Get behind me. You're in my way. You're trying to trip me up. Guys, here's what he ultimately is saying. Peter, you think you're for me. You're my adversary. You're my... Satan means adversary. He's not literally saying that Peter is Satan. Satan has not taken over Peter's body and speaking through him. You say, then what in the world is that about? Write this down. Like Satan, Peter was tempting Jesus to choose an easier path to glory. Do you remember back in chapter 4 if you were here a couple of years ago? Do you remember that? Back in the wilderness in chapter 4, Satan comes. You're hungry, Jesus? You have the power? Just turn these stones into bread. Take the easy path to glory. You know you have the ability. Just, he takes him up to the highest point of the temple. Apparently a section where you could fall hundreds of feet. He tells Jesus just to launch out. Go draw a crowd. Jump off the precipice. You know full well the angels will not let you dash your foot against a stone. What a statement that would make. Take the quick road to glory. He even shows him the kingdoms of all the world. And Satan, let's just take him for at face value if he was being honest this time. He tells this man, Jesus, if you'll bow down and worship me, I'll give you all these kingdoms. I just want to see you bow down and worship. Here's what he's saying. Jesus, get this, Jesus is on the path of maximum glory. 
Satan tried to derail him, and now here Peter is trying to tempt him as well to get off the path of maximum glory, choose the easier path to a lower level of glory. But Jesus will not be deterred. This is an amazing section of Scripture. Peter has just made a theologically accurate confession that was shown to him by God the Father. He speaks it, and now here Jesus gives him new revelation, and he resists it. Again, don't be like Peter. Clinging to certain revelation, excited to get on board with it, and then new revelation comes. I don't like that, and so I reject that. Again, I've had, this is my third quote at the beginning. We'll have two more after this. Sproul writes the following. Look at verse 22. See the middle of verse 22. See that phrase? Far be it from you, Lord. Far be it from you, Lord. Sproul writes that the phrase, far be it from you, can be translated, as I alluded to a while ago. Here's one way you could have translated that. God forbid that this should happen to you. God forbid. Now, that could be taken. May God forbid this from happening to you, Lord. This shall never happen. Or is he saying, God will forbid this from happening? Back to Sproul's quote. He writes, get it. God God forbid it? God would not forbid the cross. For he had ordained the cross. If Jesus did not go... This is not making sense in Peter's mind. Peter's thinking like a man. Sproul is correct now. On the other side of the cross, we're looking back. We have all of this revelation in what we call the New Testament. We're not in Peter's time, but Sproul continues. If Jesus did not go to the cross, he would not be able to complete his mission as the Messiah. There would be no salvation. Here he's saying, God will not forbid, God will not allow this. God will forbid this. And Jesus is knowing, no, he will not. God will not forbid what he has willed. You're wrong, Peter. Again, if you're taking notes... Peter's well-meaning. Let's give him that. Peter is absolutely well-meaning. But Jesus did not need anyone trying to weaken his resolve from following and obeying the Lord's plan for his life, even the plan of the cross. It's heavy enough on its own. The last thing he needs is a person who's supposed to be like his very best friend trying to weaken his resolve. Jesus is committed. I don't have time to go to the Garden of Gethsemane this morning, but I want to challenge you. If you'll read that, I'm going to make a statement that I believe is true. Based on Jesus' prayer and the content of it where he tells the Father, if there is any other way to accomplish our plan, let this bitter cup pass from me. If there's any other way, what is he saying? I don't want to do this. Jesus is saying, I don't want what's happening. Literally, he's in the Garden of Gethsemane the night, like, In a moment, he will be betrayed and arrested. And then it'll all begin. He is literally within minutes from it happening. Right at the doorstep of the whole purpose he's coming. And he's telling the Lord, if there's any other way, Father, than this, I don't want to do this. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. He asked that three times. Here's what that tells me. What Peter is suggesting is tempting to the Lord. That's tempting. Why? You go take a note on it in a moment. So don't, don't write it yet. It'll come up in a moment. Jesus doesn't want to become sin. He knows he's going to become sin on the cross. You say, Jeff, where'd you get that idea? 
2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 says, He, God, made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to become sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God. He made him become not just a sinner. He beca- All the sins of all the people who've ever lived, who ever will live, were all placed on the Lord Jesus. He hates sin. He do- Is there any other way? What Peter's saying, this will never happen to you. Oh, that's tempting. He's never been separated from the Father. He will cry out on the cross in the darkness. My God, the only time he refers to the Father other than Father is on the cross. And now it's my God. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He's never been apart from the Father. He doesn't want to do that. And here's Peter saying, that's not going to happen. God will see to it. What a temptation he's putting before the Lord. Get behind me, adversary. Before we hit our third point, can I write, I'll share with you an application. Let me admit, you ready? I'm going to step away from this text. And let's apply it to us just for a moment while we're here. This may be for five people. It is possible to have strong affection for someone, but actually serve as a spiritual hindrance to them. Now hear that. It is very possible Peter had strong affection for the Lord. It is possible to have strong affection for someone, but actually, in the end, serve as a spiritual hindrance to them. You're thinking, okay, Jeff, I get what you're saying. Do you have any examples? Let me give you three. Here's one. Picture parents who love their children, advising their children or their child, whether they're 18 or 30 or 45. It is possible for parents, well-meaning parents, Because they have this affection and love for their children, but in ignorance, they could encourage and advise the child to choose the easier path of life. Son, daughter, you need to choose the more lucrative path, not the one that you feel like God is leading you to do for life. Do you understand how many parents, thinking they're doing the right thing, have tried their best or have succeeded in talking their child who's committed to the will of God, feels like God is calling them to do something, but the parent realizing that's not very lucrative. I don't want to see you go through a struggle. You're headed down a hard road. And so they're trying to talk them out of it. Here's a second one. Here's a couple, a Christian couple, and they're dating each other. They have strong affection, but they also have strong attraction. It is possible because of their strong attraction that they can become persistent sources of sexual temptation toward each other. Now, they may even love each other. Again, strong affection. And because there's Christians, there's not, again, because they're Christian doesn't mean they don't have strong attraction, even sexual attraction. But the problem is they can be thinking very selfishly and very ignorantly. Nothing in them is thinking, you know what I want to do? I want to tempt you and try to see if I can trip you up and wreck your spiritual life. And I want you to walk around feeling guilty all the time. And I want to be the source that causes distance and separation in your fellowship with God. That, they don't think that. All they're thinking is selfishly what I want. Here's one more. Here's a husband and a wife, a wife and a husband, however you want to look at it. One of the spouses tempts the other and tries to keep them from serving God, from giving to God. 
Maybe this one is really in tune with the Lord and they finally reached a point in life and you're like, you know what? I'm not going to be a consumer anymore. God has given me spiritual gifts for a reason. I've discovered that and I'm not using them. And I'm running out of time. I want to serve God. I don't want to just be a spectator watching everybody. I don't want to just come in and consume. I'm ready to serve. And, and the Lord has given me this. It may not be a whole lot, but I, I, I'm really feeling that. I want to give the Lord something back. But here comes the others. But now hold on. Have you really thought this through? You know if you do that, then you're not going to be able to do that. And you know if you do that, then we're not going to be able to... Don't go committing to that. Come on. That's a source of temptation. So here's what we need to remember. Whether it's this parent to the child or the dating couple or the husband and the wife, all three situations already have built-in temptations within it to the one who's committed to following the Lord. This young person, this child, again, 18, 30, 45, 55, whatever age it is, they're already feeling the pressure. Like, I know that my peers are choosing a different path, and they're going to have a different life, and it may result in them having more finer things, but I'm feeling called to this. The last thing they need is a parent adding that pressure. Here's these dating couple. Here's the ones really trying to follow the Lord. They're attracted. They're fighting it. The last thing they need is this one playing on their attraction. And trying to trip them up. Here's this spouse. They're already intimidated by the whole idea of serving the Lord. And of giving to the Lord. They're already running through the scenarios and what's going to have to be given up. They're battling that themselves. They don't need the other spouse. Let me get off this point and leave you with this. Two thoughts. Determine not to be the source of someone else's temptation. Don't be like Peter. Just don't do it. And then secondly... Learn to discern when there are human sources of temptation trying to keep you from doing God's will. Don't let refute them. Refute them. Respectfully, if it's your parent, your husband, your wife, firmly, if it's anybody else. But refute them. Number three. Number three this morning, would you notice with me, now we'll go back to verse 21, the unyielding necessity of God's plan. Look at verse 21. From that time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. As I was reading this early in the week, I kept noticing this word must. And that's where I come up with this idea. The unyielding, unrelenting necessity of God's plan. What's happening? First let me tell you what's not happening. Jesus has not been living his life as, as a man on earth and going to the temple and year after year after year for 30, 32, 33 years. Keeps hearing the preaching and teaching down at the temple. And he doesn't sneak over there. I'm sorry, not the temple, but down at the synagogue. He doesn't sneak over to the synagogue during the week and like, hey, can I get access to some of the scrolls? Well, sure. And he keeps digging the scrolls and reading. And finally he comes across some things in the Psalms scrolls and some things in the Isaiah scrolls. And he realizes, uh-oh. If I'm the Christ, then being the Christ entails all these things that everybody else hasn't seen. That's not how it happened. As the Son of God, I don't know how this works. Eternity is in our heart. We know it is true, but we don't understand how it operates. I know this. Because He's the Son of God, then from eternity past, you understand it just keeps going and going and going and going. From eternity past, that's eternity future. It keeps going and going. From eternity past, the Son of God has known fully 
the plan of God that involves this, all I know is that here we are somewhere floating in this eternal, what we call time and space. We're in it. And I know that what we're looking at in verse 21 happened 2,000 years ago, but it was known in the heart and the mind of the Son of God for all of eternity past. So he didn't get here and discover, I guess I better get busy fulfilling these prophecies that no one else sees. Would you write the note that I referred to a while ago? It was in our song a while ago. It was alluded to briefly. Here's what I want you to write. Though Jesus despised the sin of the cross, he despised, he hates sin. And for him to be on the cross, he's going to become sin itself. He will bear the sins of the world so that God could judge him. Though he despises the sin, he despises the shame, he despises the separation. He's never been separated from God, yet he endured the cross. Why? The Bible says because of the joy that was before him. So if we're going in time and space, here's the Lord coming to this. He's right at the edge of it. He despises what he's getting ready to have to face on the, in the garden, in the trials and on the cross, and yet he looks past it because of the joy. You say, what is the joy? The joy is of knowing that he's pleasing the Father. On the other side, when I'm done, then I know I'll stand before the Father and he will say, well done, my son. You did all that I asked. And he'll be able to save us. I believe that's the joy. The joy of pleasing the Father and the joy of saving us from our sins. He despised becoming sin. He despises being separated from God. He despises the shame, yet he endured the cross. I want you to write that quickly because I'm going to give you another note immediately following that one. So, Jeff, you said the word must is key. We've called this point the unyielding, the idea unyielding, unrelenting, necessity, of God's plan, as you're writing that verse 21 again, from that time Jesus began to show his disciples he must, I must go to Jerusalem, I must, the word must keeps qualifying, we have these, these word, this word and over and over, it connects, he must go to Jerusalem, he must suffer many things, he must be killed and he must on the third day be raised. Why? Two things are coming together. This is the simplicity of our message today. Here's the two things. Our sin... And God's love led to the necessity of Jesus' cross. Our sin, God's love, has led to the necessity of Jesus' cross. That's the, it's that simple. If God loved but we have no sin, Jesus doesn't have to die on the cross. If we've sinned but God doesn't love, Jesus doesn't have to die on the cross. But because we've sinned and God loves us and he doesn't want to lose us, he wants us to live with him forever, then that necessitates the cross of Christ. That necessitates his suffering and dying and resurrection. Let's apply this for a moment. Several times recently I've made a statement how messed up our country is, particularly right now, like we're in the phase right now, like literally in the last two or three years it's gotten so much worse not only do we have blatant sin, but our country is trying to redefine sin. And as we try to redefine sin, the Bible says that is sin. Here comes modern man and saying, yeah, well, we don't think that's any longer sin. And now we celebrate these people who have great courage for coming out and, expo and saying that they live in this lifestyle. Oh, great, look how courageous they are. So we're celebrating their sin. And now we're demanding that everyone else get the new definition of sin. It's not God's definition. You have to get on board with a new definition of sin. If you don't, you may get like a $50,000 fine at your job. You may lose your job. 
You better not say anything negative about the new definitions of sin. Here's the problem. God has already spoken. God has defined sin. God says sin is crossing the line of his law. I don't have time to teach all the law of God. I don't have time to teach and preach through the Ten Commandments even. And they're just a fraction. But to make this point, can I share a few of the commandments of God? God has defined what sin is. Here's here's one. Here's his law. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. That means this muscle. With all your core, with all your heart, with all your soul, your full emotion, with all your mind, and with all your strength. You shall love the Lord. He says, you'll have no other gods before me. What that means is if there's ever been a day, no, if there's ever been a moment, if there's ever been a moment where you've loved anything or anyone more than you've loved God, then you've broken the law of God. Let that sink in. If there's ever been a moment you love anything, anyone, any idea, any pursuit, pleasure, yourself, that person or that person, that thing, that activity, if you've ever loved it more than, and some of you are thinking, if there's ever been a moment we've loved that or them more than God, be honest. Some of you just have to say this, I don't know there's ever been a moment I've loved God more than other things. I'm not looking at, is there a moment I've ever stopped loving him the most? I don't know there's ever been a moment I've loved him the most. Well, welcome to humanity. You love yourself more than you love God. Here's another one. You shall never take the name of the Lord in vain. If you ever take his name in vain, ever take his name in vain, he does not hold you guiltless. That means you're guilty. Here's another one. We are to honor our parents. Right, got to obey. Nope. It's not talking about obeying the parents. That's a byproduct. You are to honor the parents. To honor the parents means to have a sweet spirit toward the parents at all times. To have and maintain a sweet spirit toward the parents. Here's another. You shall not steal. The idea never steal. Never take what's not yours. Here's another one. You shall never lie. You shall never lie. You say, Jeff, why did Jesus have to suffer and die? I'm telling you right now. It's our sin. Can I ask it just... Evaluate yourself. Don't worry about the person. Say, boy, I wish somebody was here today because they did one of those things to me. Forget about them. Evaluate yourself. Has there ever been a moment in your life where you've loved anything or anyone more than you love God? Ask yourself this. Be honest. Have you ever in your life taken the name or the titles of God in vain? And if in your mind you think, yeah, but I didn't mean it. That's what in vain means. Have you ever used them flippantly or have you ever used them as an expletive and putting a curse word with it? Or even just saying, oh, how many people would not say, oh, my God, but they'll say, good Lord. I hear Christians do it about two or three times a month. So I keep preaching on it. And if that's you, stop saying it. Stop saying it. You're taking the name of the Lord in vain. His name is Lord. Stop saying it. Stop putting it on in your little phrases. You need to unlearn that. How many billions of times? Boy, I'm getting fired on this one thing, and I've got a lot more message. How many billions of times is this sin committed across our country? Every, every hour, this is committed billions of times. Some people can't talk five seconds without taking the name of the Lord in vain. It is pitiful. Have you ever done that one time? Have you ever typed OMG? Well, I didn't mean it like that. Yes, you put the thought in their mind. I did it then with an intention of trying to show you this is sin. Stop it. Here's one. 
Have you ever dishonored your parents ever in your life? Have you ever rolled your eyes after they said something or told you to do something? Have you ever huffed? Have you ever stomped away? Have you ever slammed a door? Have you ever delayed in doing what they said? Have you ever not done what they've said fully and to the best of your ability and quickly and with a sweet spirit? Uh, fail, we all just blew that one. <laughs> have you ever stolen something that wasn't yours? I mean, when you were a little child, have you ever taken a toy, whether it be at nursery or your little younger sibling because you could? Or your older sibling when they turned their back. And because you were sneaky. He goes, come on, Jeff, that's us as a little child. It counts. Have you ever stolen a pen in school? Have you ever sat in school and someone else's answer or homework looks better, looks better than yours? And so you just sat there and take it. Even if they offered it. Or you just looked over and it's like, that's not your work. You and you're like, come on, Jeff, by the way, you're defining this. Then everybody's guilty. Have you ever in your life been paid to work six hours or eight hours or a 10-hour shift, whatever it may be. But within that time, you made personal phone calls, personal texts, scroll through some social media. And you didn't stay after the, the, you clocked out to make up the difference. And now you're saying, Jeff, come on. Every, the fact that the culture steals every day doesn't make it right. If you're on a salary and you're expected to work 40, 45 hours, and you spend a good bit of your time just doing personal things, you are stealing. You're robbing from that employer. You are sinning against the law of God. Have you ever told a lie? If you're sitting right there thinking, uh, no, I've never done any of the things you've just said, you're lying right now. We're guilty. We're guilty. Why did Jesus have to suffer? He says, I must go to Jerusalem. I must suffer. I must die. Why? Our sin. Write this down. Jesus had to suffer because God's nature is unchanging. It's unrelenting. God's nature will not bend. I'm borrowing heavily today from the exchange material that we've done on recent Wednesday nights. And I'll just tell you, you're going to hear more of that in a few moments but understand, someone listening right now has never heard what we're about to say, and you need to get it. Well, you're just some preacher. I don't even know your name. It doesn't matter. That's your idea. No, it isn't. What I'm saying is the, is the truth. It's in the Word of God. Well, God's not concerned. God's going to let it slide. No, He will not. Write this down. Jesus had to suffer because God's holy nature cannot tolerate any sin. And God's just nature will not allow Him to just overlook our sin. He has to judge our sin. He has to judge it by the same standard, and the standard is death. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. This is why Jesus had to suffer and die. It is that simple. And you've written that, look at verse 21. From that time, Jesus began to show His disciples that He must go to Jerusalem. It has to happen in Jerusalem. By the way, I'm not keying on that. But it has to happen in Jerusalem. And He must suffer many things. It would take two months of preaching to really spell out what I'm about to describe. So Jeff, what are these many things that Jesus had to suffer? I realize what I'm saying is just black ink on a page and it's getting ready to just be a human voice floating sounds into the air. But behind these sounds and letters and words are, are events that are deep, that were suffering. Jesus had to suffer in ways like the following. And this is not an exhaustive list. He suffered near to the point of death in the Garden of Gethsemane. The Bible says that, again, he goes to the 
to pray in the garden. His disciples are supposed to be lifting him up in prayer. They, they can't stay awake. They're sleeping. It's getting late at night. It was right around this time of the year. And there he is on a cool night, no doubt. He is, the Bible says, sweating. His sweat became, as it were, great drops of blood. Some people believe it is, he was so under such intense stress that his sweat was not even just sweat. It had become like blood was leaking through the pores of his skin. And you may say that's not humanly possible. Some in the physical world have said it is possible under extreme circumstances. He almost dies in the Garden of Gethsemane. He was betrayed by a friend, literally, where you say, man, that person sold them out. He was betrayed for money. You give me this much money, and I'll make sure I'll tell you where he is, and you'll be able to arrest him. His name was Judas. He was put on trial and had six phases of corrupt trial, three corrupt phases of the Jewish trial, three phases of the Roman trial. Pilate tried to release him, knew that he was not guilty, but he did not have the courage to follow through on the conviction that this man was innocent. Six corrupt phases of a trial. Denied by a close friend. I mean, the closest of all the people out there, one of the 12 betrays him for money, and then probably the one that would say he's his absolute closest denies him. Jesus is being put on trial by the Jews, the Jewish leaders, the elders, and the, and the Pharisees, and the scribes, and the chief priest, that group. Just a few feet away, ultimately three times, Peter is denying with swear words. Apparently something to the effect, I swear by the living God, I don't know him. And after the third one, Jesus turns and looks and they make eye contact. Scourging. I don't have, I'm not going to take the time. Flogging, as John calls it, scourging. I won't go into it all. Just know the options are to put a person wrapped around a post or to pull a person tightly between a post, expose their back. Usually two torturers would take turns with a whip that was called a cat of nine tails. It had nine lashes on it. In those nine lashes were pieces of bone and glass and stone, and they would take turns just lashing the back of the scourging victim. And Jesus as if he hadn't almost died in the garden, almost no doubt dies here. Pilate's purpose for having him scourged was so that the Jews would feel sorry for him for how badly he was beaten up and he's almost dead. Now isn't that enough? And we know that that wasn't enough. How did he suffer? He was spat upon. Don't downplay that. He had thorns put on his head, pressed into his head. Mocked by Jews, mocked by Roman soldiers. We know there were, he was punched and his face would have become a bloody swollen mess. He was slapped. He was hit with a reed, some type of limb or stick over the face and over the head. He was nailed in his hands, nailed in his feet to a tree. Public nakedness, thirst, fever, bones out of joint. Bones out of joint bearing weight of his body and suffocation. I would ask you, go home, go back, play that list back and ask yourself in the last three months, how many of those have I experienced? Probably none of those things. None of them. John 19. Would you flip over there? John 19. Go with me to John 19. I just want you to see the lead up because we've implied it. Look at John 19. I'm going to, you'll see on the screen verse 15, I'm going to back up to verse 14. It was the day of the preparation of the Passover, and it was about the sixth hour. Pilate said to the Jews, behold your king. He's, he's literally 
Come on. He's had enough. Behold your king. They cried out in verse 15 of John 19. Watch it. They cried out. Away with him. Away with him. Away with him. Crucify him. They've been shouting this already. What? Crucify? He's done nothing to deserve getting in any trouble. He's done nothing to deserve being arrested, much less being put on a trial, much less being here in front of me, Pilate would think. He doesn't deserve to to be held another moment. He doesn't deserve to go to jail. He doesn't deserve to go to prison. He doesn't deserve to die. Crucify. Away with him. Away with him. Crucify him, Pilate said to them. Shall I crucify your king? Oh, this next group. Boy, they they are on my nerves. The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. Here's these Jewish leaders. They hate Rome. These Jewish leaders. Tiberius is our king, not him. And then here it is. Look at the simple language. Verse 16. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus. That doesn't mean that the Jewish people took Jesus. He gives over to the will of the people, which were the Jews. And then the Roman soldiers, we know, taking a fuller look of all the gospels. So they took Jesus And he went out, bearing his own cross to the place called the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. Can I invite you to look at the next four words? So simple. There they crucified him. Do you see that? There they crucified him. And with two others. With him were two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. There's three crosses. Jesus is the one in the middle. There they crucified him. Forgive me for using something. I know I've used at least two other Easters. Frederick Farrar, I don't know anything about him, but he studied crucifixion victims and he compiled what they go through. Again, this is words, I understand. Some of you are like, I think I remember hearing that. Taste it one more time. Frederick Farrar writes the following of his findings of those who were crucified. Quote, indeed, a death by crucifixion seems to include all that pain and death can have of ghastly and horrible. And he gives a list. Some I've included, but he adds more. What are they going through? What's it like to be crucified? Dizziness. Cramp. Like the muscles are, and you can't do a thing about it. Thirst, starvation, sleeplessness, traumatic fever, tetanus, tetanus poisonous flowing through the body, shame, publicity of shame. I read those two words, shame, publicity of shame. We don't put a lot of weight to them. But just know, if I were right now to call you out, publicly with these couple of hundred people here this morning and cameras rolling and bring you up. And if I were to try to do my best to shame you, you would hate it and you'd fire back at me and rightly so. Don't belittle that. Shame. What are they going through? Publicity of shame. These next two, these next three, it would take an hour to unfold. Long continuance of torment. Long continuance of torment. Horror of anticipation. Not just being scourged, wondering when is the next lash coming, 
But knowing, I know what's coming. I'm carrying this thing. They're going to put a spike through there, and then that, and then there. And then literally, every time to get a breath is to pull, knowing that that's coming. Horror of anticipation. Mortification of untended wounds. Can't do anything about it. And here's the point. All of that is intensified just up to the point at which they can be endured at all. But all stopping just short of the point which would give the sufferer the relief of unconsciousness. If I could just go unconscious. But the crucifixion is the worst way to die in the history of mankind. It doesn't let you go unconscious. You can't sleep. You're just hanging there, suffocating. And in long continuance, he, he continues... The unnatural position made every, I mean, every movement painful. The lacerated veins and crushed tendons throbbed with incessant anguish. And while each variety of misery went on gradually increasing, how? Gradually increasing, there was added to them the intolerable pang of a burning and raging thirst. And all these physical... You're going to write this in a moment. Hear it first. Just hear it. And all, here's what's it like to die on a cross. All these physical complications caused an internal excitement and anxiety which made the prospect of death itself, of death, the unknown enemy at whose approach man usually shudders most. Death's coming. He writes, it makes, death bear, it makes death bear the aspect of a delicious and exquisite release. I think I'm going to die within the next hour or two. Yes. Yes. Do you realize what he's saying? Did you write that down? A person on the cross, if you could interview them, may would very well tell you, I don't know what happens one second after death, but I'll promise you, I'll take death right now. Just kill me. Take that sword and just kill me right now. You sure you want to die? Please kill me. But you can't. Sometimes crucifixion victims would hang on the cross for hours. Listen, that's the cost of our sins that so often we commit so casually. That's the cost of your sin and mine. Hey, the next time you're just choosing to live in sin, think about what we just read and what your Lord went through. Why would you add more sin on top of what he already has paid for. He's not bound by time. That motivates me when I read that. Jeff, don't. Quickly, he had to die. He must die. Why? Many people died on crosses. I don't know how many. I dare say tens of thousands. Tens of thousands of people died on Roman crosses over the hundreds of years of the Roman Empire. But Good Friday, if you want to write this down, Good Friday, what we just celebrated, is particularly, it's of utmost significance because of who died on this cross. Tens of thousands died on crosses. Good Friday is significant because Jesus is God the Son. See, we could not, had Jesus come and did all the same miracles, spoken exactly all the same words, lived the exact same sinless, perfect life, and then went back to heaven, we can't be saved. He must have died. His Miracles couldn't save us. His words alone couldn't save us. And his life, his perfect life by itself couldn't save us. He must die. And he did die. He must do it. Again, you see the villain in the story. Our sin causes this. But God's love 
causes this. And then that brings us to this third aspect of verse 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples he must go to Jerusalem. He must suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes. He must be killed and on the, listen, he must be raised and it must be on the third day. It has to be on the third. He must be raised. It must be on the third day. Why? Because the third day was the sign that he had given them to indicate when I rise again, it'll be on the third day. And when you know that, that'll indicate exactly who I am, the significance of who I am, the significance of what I've done. I know I'm giving you notes quickly. Write this down. Everything in Christianity rises or falls on Jesus' resurrection. Everything. If Jesus did not rise from the dead, there is no Christianity. It is gone. We're, we're going home. But if he did rise from the dead, then Christianity rises. It rises or falls exactly with the resurrection of Christ. Earlier, Mike read to us in Luke. Would you go? You're in Matthew 16. Would you go to chapter 28? I told you the last chapter. Just going to read this quickly. Look at Matthew 28 because we want to make an important point. Matthew 28. Verse 1. Now after the Sabbath, that's Saturday, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Sunday, what we call Sunday, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary, and by the way, I'll tell you there was another woman. There were three of them, actually. Matthew just includes these two in his story. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to the tomb. As we heard earlier, they had these spices, and they're going to anoint the body. It's getting ready to be the, third, the, the full third day, and it's going into the fourth day, and that's when the body's going to decompose. They did not embalm, so they would apply spices and expensive perfumes to try to keep the stench down. Verse 2, so as these women are coming, they're even wondering who's going to roll the stone away. Oh, we've got to plan for that. We're going to need some help for us to be able to put these spices on the linen-wrapped body of Jesus. Verse 2, And behold, there was a great earthquake. Before they got there, by the way, there was a great earthquake for an angel of the Lord. Luke talks about the two of them. Matthew focuses on one. For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone. Jesus didn't roll the stone back. He didn't need to. He's already out. The angel rolls away the stone and sat on it. What's the angel like? His appearance was like lightning. That means his appearance. Apparently, the facial area is like lightning which is distinct from, and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards, the Roman guards, literally trained killers, the toughest men in the world at that time, for fear of him, the guards trembled at this angel and became like dead men. So here comes these women, verse 5, but the angel said to the women, do not be afraid. So these men are frozen, apparently in some kind of trance. But the angel said to the women, do not be afraid. For I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He's not here. For he is risen as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they, these women, departed quickly from the tomb with two emotions. With fear... And great joy. And ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Flip over quickly. Acts chapter 1. 
Look at Acts chapter 1. Notice verse 3. Because we're going to make a point, very important point. Luke, in the book of Acts, right in in chapter 1, verse 3, he presented himself, he presented himself, him, the real him, alive to them after his suffering by many proofs. King James says, many infallible proofs. Proofs, the kind of proofs you would take into a law. Like, how do you know it was really him? He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. I'm going to give you a second quote I've used probably three or four times at Easter. This is loaded. This is a loaded one. It's from the realm of apologetics, but it is absolutely... It would take 15 minutes to unpack it. Some man named Leany writes the following. Jesus was crucified, one, and buried, two. His followers were utterly dejected, three. Back up. Jesus was crucified and buried. His followers were utterly dejected. But he writes, a very short time afterwards, they, his followers, were extremely elated and showed such reassurance as carried them by, number one, a sustained life of devotion. They were dejected, down and out, don't know what to do, and all of a sudden they're elated, and they have such reassurance that it carries them by a sustained life of devotion through to a martyr's death. Meaning they all died, all except for John, they all died prematurely. They're put to death because of their faith and their belief and the message that they keep giving that Jesus was resurrected. Write this down. This is pure psychology. I stand by it. People only die for what they truly believe. All of the apostles died for their testimony that Jesus is alive. Therefore, we conclude this. They were convinced Jesus had risen from the dead. By what? Oh, I guess it was the empty tomb. No, no, no. Understand. The empty tomb did read the Gospels. The empty tomb, it was empty, and they went in and looked, and they're wondering, where did he go? That, the empty tomb did not convince them. You say, then what convinced him? His appearances. It was the appearances of the Lord after his resurrection that caused them to have a sustained life of devotion to him and to be willing to die for his cause. Mike shared a few minutes ago what the meaning of the resurrection is. Several years ago, I think I gave you like eight or ten. I don't have time to give you eight or ten. Can I just give you this quickly? Christians especially, you pay attention. So Jeff, what does the resurrection of Christ mean? To us. What does it prove? Not an exhaustive list, but here's what it proves. Number one, the resurrection of Jesus proves that God accepted Jesus' death as a sufficient payment for our sins. God the Father raised His Son to life, proving I accept His death as the payment for sin. Number two, what does the death and the resurrection of Jesus prove? It proves that all that Jesus ever said, all he ever said is true. You say, Jeff, why would you say all that he ever said is true? Because he predicted this exactly in detail. He says, I'm going to Jerusalem. 
I am going, later on he's going to add more to that. Later on he even says I'm going to be crucified. Later on he says I'm going to be betrayed by a very close friend. But he says I'm going to Jerusalem, that's the where. It's going to be the when, when we go to Jerusalem. It's going to be the elders and the chief priests and the scribes. They're going to be the main ones that are driving this. He says how it will happen. He says that he will be resurrected and he calls it the third day. Don't look for me to rise again on the second day or the first day or the tenth day. It will be the third day. Here's what that tells me. Everything this man ever says happens. I can believe everything in the Word of God. Write this one down. What does it mean? It means a Christian's resurrection is guaranteed. Our resurrection is guaranteed. Write that and flip over if you would. Romans 8. I want you to see one verse. Romans 8. As soon as you write that. Romans chapter 8. Look at Romans 8, verse 11. This is only for Christians. This is not for anyone who is not a believer in Christ. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead, that's God, if the Spirit of God, if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies. Through His Spirit who dwells in you. One more time. If the Spirit, you say, well, I don't know that I'm one of those Christians that has the Holy Spirit. Look back at verse 9 at the end. Look at verse 9. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. All Christians have the Spirit. Verse 11. If the Spirit of Christ who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. Yes, I will die, but death will not keep me down. Death is literally like that door back there and the one beyond it. Death is just a door that a Christian has to go through to live life with God. It's just a door. It will not keep us in prison. And then the fourth, would you write this down? Jesus' resurrection proves that he is alive. Right now, he's alive, and he lives inside of every believer. That means, Jeff, you're never alone. You're not alone up here right now. None of these people who are true Christians are alone. You're never alone. You say, I feel like I'm alone. You're never alone. Christ is alive, and he lives inside of you. Do you know him? Christian, do you know Jesus? You say, well, I know a lot about God. That's not what I'm saying. I'm asking you a question. Do you know Jesus? You say, I I know God the Father... I do too. Do you know Jesus? If you say, yes, I know Jesus. If you took your idea of what he is like and I took mine and all the Christians who've ever lived and who ever will live who in this life know Jesus and we compared notes. If we know the same person, it should match. Do you know Jesus? I know him. He is alive. I've literally talked to him multiple times today. Flip over to Acts 16. I have just two quick passages and we'll be done this morning. So here's the thought that strikes me. God is undeniably loving. I know God is loving because of all I've just read. Who would do what he did? Who would send his son to go through this? I know God is loving. But I also know that God's nature is holy. He will not. He cannot tolerate our sin. And His nature is just. He cannot overlook our sin. He must punish our sin. So here's my question. 
Jesus has done everything He must do to make your salvation possible. Have you done what you must do to have it? He's done everything He needs to do. He says it is finished. He's risen from the dead. He's done everything He must do to make your salvation possible. He had to suffer. He had to die. And He had to rise again. He's done it all. Have you, done, you say, well, what must I do? Jesus says in John 3, you must be born again. You must be born again. You must be born twice. You have to be born physically. You must be born from above spiritually. You say, how do you do that? Acts chapter 16. Had you turn there? Look at verse 30. A man who almost committed suicide asked two of Jesus' apostles the following question in verse 30. Here's what he asked. This jailer who had these two apostles in his prison brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? This morning, someone sitting here, someone watching, should be asking this question. So if God made His Son go through all of that, then sin must be a serious thing, and God is serious about judging our sin. Hey, preacher up there, what must I do to be saved? I'm asking the same question. Verse 31 is the answer. And they said to Him, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved. You and your household. Believe in the Lord Jesus... And you'll be saved. You must believe. Let's review. You that were with us on Wednesdays. If everything in life hinges on this word believe, then we better know how to define it. To believe means this. To understand a fact and to agree with it. Put it together. You have to understand a fact. Do you understand this? Yes, I believe it. Do you agree with it? Yes, I believe it. But Bible salvation, to get eternal life, has a third aspect to believing. What we call saving faith has three elements. It is to understand the facts of the gospel. First, you have to understand the facts. You can't get saved unless you understand. God is holy. He, must, he, he can't tolerate our sin. God is just. He will punish our sin. But God loves me so much. He sent his son to die on a cross to pay for my sins. And he'll give me salvation for free if I'll trust him. You have to understand the facts. Secondly, you must agree with it. Here's what I want to ask you. God says that you are a sinner. Do you agree with it? That's the fact you have to understand. God says, I'm a sinner. Do you agree? Can you talk to God? God, yes, I am a sinner. God says Jesus is his son, and Jesus is the Savior of the world. He's the only Savior. Do you agree with that? Can you honestly say, God, I believe, I do agree. I understand that, and I agree that Jesus is the Savior. I understand that he is the only way to be saved. You say, well, if I understand that and I agree with that, then I'm a Christian, right? No, you're still not saved. This is the third thing that so many people stop short. If you could see my notes, you would see some capital, fully capped words. I'll emphasize them. The third aspect of being saved is not only understanding and agreeing, it's trusting, depending. It's this. You must choose. He's done everything he needs to do. Have you done this? You must choose to receive. God's free gift of salvation. So much so, this is capitalized. You must choose to receive God's free gift of salvation and know that he will give it to you. That's saving faith. It's not, yeah, uh, one time I prayed a prayer and I, I, I asked Jesus in my heart. 
Did you, is there ever a moment in your life, somebody sitting here this morning cannot honestly say, they can't say there's ever been a moment where they have chosen to receive the salvation from the Lord. They have chosen to trust Christ knowing he will give them salvation. You have to know that he will do it. That's faith and dependence. Your last text, for real, Ephesians 2. Flip over there, Ephesians 2. One of my favorite passages, I use it all the time here. If you're here every week, you hear this a lot. I get it. Ephesians 2, look on the screen. For by grace you have been saved. For by grace you have been saved. Through faith. Grace means gift. For by grace you have been saved through faith. Faith is your part. Grace is God's part. Now notice what the rest says. And this is not your doing. You can't do anything to be saved. It's the gift of God. Here's where so many people trip up. Hey, newsflash. It's not a result of works so that no one may boast. You can't work for it. You can't work for it. Grace means it is purely God's gift to you. That means when you come to be saved, you can't have any thought in your mind of your goodness. Like, Lord, I'm trusting Jesus' death on the cross, and I'm, I'm bringing my part too. I'm, I'm going to do better. I promise I'm going to do better. Your doing better should happen, but your doing better is not brought into the equation of saving you. You have to rid that out of your mind. You say, Jeff, if his is the grace part and ours is the faith part, then what is faith? Write it down. It's your last note. It's your last note. Faith is to hear God's promise and respond like he's telling the truth. Faith is to hear God's promise. The Bible says God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him would not perish. But have ever, The Bible says whoever believes in Jesus will not perish. This man, sirs, what must I do to be saved? The Bible says believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. Faith says, I've heard that promise from God, and I'm going to act like God's telling the truth. It's this. God says to you, I will save you if you'll receive it. I'll save you if you'll, re- will you take it? Literally, it's, here's what it means. Don't move a muscle. Don't move, don't move at all and just receive my salvation. I'm going to save you. Will you just receive it and let me, let my son's death do it all? To drive this point home, I am going to share an illustration, and this will be the end. It's one of my favorite because I think it gets across the idea of trusting. If you were with us on recent Wednesday nights, you should know this. Would you be patient? Because someone here maybe has never and like can't get it. Perhaps this helps us. There was a man named Charles Blondine. This is real. B-L-O-N-D-I-N-E. Charles Blondine. Go look it up after the service. Don't look it up now. I promise. You pull up Charles Blondine. You'll see a picture of him. You'll see a description. You go read this. Don't do it now. Charles Blondine was a famous acrobat back in the 1800s. In 1859, literally just a couple of years before the Civil War, this man was such a gifted and talented acrobat, tightrope walker, that he stretched a tightrope 190 feet above the waters of Niagara Falls. 
and it stretched the 1,000-foot span from one side to the other, 1,000 feet across, 190 feet above the falls of Niagara. He did four things. Number one, he navigated across this tightrope above the Niagara Falls, almost 200 feet. Like some of the highest roller coasters around here, like last thing you'd want to do is die in that water. He navigated the space, but he doesn't stop there. He had a manager, must have been nutso. The manager got on his back. Blondine, with his manager on his back, goes out across the span over the waters of Niagara Falls. Number three, he's not done, takes him back. He has a specially fitted wheelbarrow. He pushes this wheelbarrow out over the waters of Niagara Falls and comes back. He's still not done. This man puts a cook stove in the wheelbarrow, pushes the wheelbarrow with the cook stove in it out over Niagara Falls, parks it. Dude has some eggs with him. He makes an omelet and eats the omelet on the tightrope with the wheelbarrow with the cook stove in it. The crowd is amazed. He comes back to the edge. He starts asking the crowd, who here thinks I can put a man in the wheelbarrow and take him safely out over the Niagara Falls and bring them back? Who thinks I could put a man in? And the crowd starts like, yeah, woo, all right. Yeah, we believe, we believe. Who, come on, who believes? We believe, we believe. Who, come on, I believe, I believe. You, sir, get in the wheelbarrow. What do you think happened? So I guess under pressure, he got in the No, this man's not stupid. He ran the other way. So Jeff, what's the point? I'll guarantee you, if you could go back in time with a lie detector, put that man on it and ask him, do you believe, you saw those four things, do you believe Blondine could take a man in the wheelbarrow and take him out over and navigate back safely? He would pass. Oh, absolutely. I have no doubt. Yes, he could take a man out and bring him back. You say, then what's the problem? Listen, he believed Blondine could put a man, some other man, in the wheelbarrow. But he's not willing to put his life on the line and trust Blondine to take him out. Jeff, I'm still missing. Man, this sounds like an interesting story. I need to follow up on it. You should, but here's the point. That's the way it is with a lot of people about salvation. Somebody sitting here this morning. They believe there was this man named Jesus, historical figure. He was a Jew. He lived 2,000 years ago. They believe he died on a cross. And literally, they understand that God is holy and God is just and he must punish sin. And that God sent his son to die on a cross. To pay. They, literally, they believe all of that. They understand it. They agree with it. They understand and agree that they're a sinner. If you were to put them on a lie detector, they believe that about Jesus the same way that that man would have passed a lie detector test about Blondine. But just like that man, there's so many people on earth, many are in hell today, and some perhaps even listening right now who believe all those same things about Jesus. Yes, Jesus died on the cross. God accepts his death on the cross to pay for sin. And they believe that, yes, he dies for the sins of man. The problem is they've never made it personal to them. They've never trusted him at a time and point. They've never put their trust in Christ. It's in their head. 
Hell is filled with people. If you could go back in history, put them on a lie detector, they knew all the stuff that I said today, and they would go right up to the point of personally trusting him, but they're in hell because they didn't make it personal. That's the difference. It's not just understanding and agreeing. It's understanding and agreeing and trusting. You say, Jeff, then what is it? It's doing nothing. I'm, I'm receiving your salvation. I'm letting you save me at this moment in time. It is literally a mo- here. I'm literally done. Three things. First step. First step to becoming a Christian is to admit you need it. You have to admit you need to be saved. I don't even know if I said the word. I have a couple of times. If you think for a moment that God would send his sinless perfect son to the earth and let him go through all of what he suffered and died on the cross and the judgment of sin. If you think he would let him go through that and he did... God punished his own son. Then you had better know that he will, he will, I don't think God will do that. He will condemn to hell for eternity anyone who mocks his son's death by rejecting his offer. If you reject his offer, then he will condemn you to death in hell for eternity in torments continuously unending. Reject Christ. See what happens. You better not do it. First step, you have to admit. Second step, this is, this is key. Stop trusting yourself. Number, number two, stop trust. Don't, don't even think about how good you are or I'm going to get baptized. I'm going to become a member. I'm going to read. I'm going to give. I'm going to stop using those words. I'm going to stop having sex with him or her. I'm going to, that is not what's going to save you. Third thing is you better put your full faith and trust in Christ. And here it is. That I'm learning is a moment in time and it's an invisible an invisible moment in time. We can't see when it happens. But you know it happens, and God knows it happens. It's about eyes closed. Would you close your eyes just for a moment? I'm going to ask that no one look around, please. Don't check out. Here's where I always... I, I love questions because questions draw the point of the message home. Here's the first question. Don't respond physically, just internally. Here it is. Do you, I'm talking to you, do you have 100% assurance that your sins have been forgiven? Do you have 100%? You say, well, Jeff, I'm probably about 95% or I'm about 80%. I'm 50%. I'm, I'm only talking, do you have 100% certainty your sins are forgiven and you're on your way to heaven? Here's the second question. Do you have, if you say yes, and a lot of you are thinking yes right now, I have 100%. Here's my next question. Do you have a Bible reason for thinking that? If you're sitting there thinking, well, I'm not bad, you're, you're not in it. Don't, don't respond. You're not in it. You've disqualified yourself if you're thinking that. I'm asking, do you have a Bible reason why you're 100% sure? Now, listen, heads bowed, eyes closed, no one looking around. I'm going to be looking around, no one looking around. If you're 100% sure and you have a Bible reason, would you raise your hand? You say, I'm 100% sure. Would you raise your hand right now? Just high, hold it up. Would you keep it up? 100% sure. Keep your hand up if you know for sure. Thank you. Probably at least a dozen or so. I don't know why. At least a dozen or so who were, did not raise their hand. 
My question to you this morning, if you did not or could not raise your hand, here's my question. Do you believe God loves you? Just answer within yourself. That, that's simple. Do you honestly believe God loves you? You're watching at home. Do you believe God loves you? Second, do you believe? Like, believe like I know it for a fact. Do you believe He will forgive you if you ask Him? Will He forgive you if you ask Him? If you sat there and said, well, after this, I mean, what Jesus... I know He loves me, and yes, it's clear He's promised in His Word. I know He would forgive me if I ask Him. Then there's only one more question. Are you willing to receive Him right now? Is anyone here this morning, anyone watching online, that you're willing to receive Him? If that's you, it may be one person. If that is you, would you just talk to the Lord? If you can honestly say, I know He loves me. I really, I know that if I ask Him, He will forgive me of my sins. And I want to receive Him as my Savior this morning. Would you just do this? Just talk to the Lord. The words of this prayer and how perfectly you save them. That's not what will save you. I'm telling you, it is you. It's an invisible moment of time. It may very well be before you actually say these words to the Lord. Your faith may be driving you to say this to the Lord. But would you confess to the Lord the following? Would you just speak to Him? By the way, He knows every thought. Just talk to Him. Let me prompt you. Don't talk to me. Don't talk to anyone else. Don't talk to yourself. Know that God will hear you and talk to the Lord right now. Would you say to him, if you want to, if the Lord's drawing you, just say the following to the Lord. Dear Jesus, I have sinned against your holy nature. And I deserve your judgment. Talk to him. Tell him. Don't stop. Tell him, I believe that you love me. And I believe you died to pay for my sins. I believe you died to pay for my sins. And then don't stop. Talk to him, not me. Talk to the Lord. Please, say this to him. Please forgive me of my sins. And let your death on the cross count for me. Please forgive me. Let your death count for me. I right now. Tell him. And do it. Like fall into his arm. Trust him as if someone were to get him Blondine's wheelbarrow. Then we would know they really trusted him. Put your full weight and trust of your soul and your spirit in the Lord Jesus. And just fall out and tell him. Jesus, I right now receive your forgiveness and eternal life. I receive it right now. And then tell him thank you. Christians, just before I pray, give thanks to God. Give thanks to Jesus for his suffering and his death. Are there any Christians listening online or here in person? Do any of us have known sin? After hearing what He suffered for us, can we despise our sin and hate it and turn from it? Please turn from your sin. Repent of it. Christians, let's strive to know this risen Lord. 
He is real. He's alive. His spirit lives in us. He's a real person. Leave here today. I want to know Christ better. And just before I pray, let's get practical. Somebody here today needs to realize, I think I've been a hindrance to someone's spiritual walk. They're committed to the cause of Christ. I've been trying to talk them out of it. and My motives, I thought, were good, but I've been misguided. I'm going to stop being a source of hindrance. And maybe someone this morning is like, someone's been trying to talk me out of doing God's known will. I know the Lord is leading me, but someone very close who loves me, but for ignorant, selfish reasons, they're trying to talk me out of following the Lord. Would you double down on following Christ this morning? Let's pray. Father, this message is done, Lord. Thank you for these people's patience. Lord, would you use the parts and the whole of it? Would you use your word? Lord, let not one leave here today unsure that they're saved. God, if there's even one that's still in turmoil. Father, my prayer ultimately is for the ones that walked in here this morning or who are viewing online that to start this message were unsaved. Lord, I'm praying if two things. Would you do this, please, Lord? If anyone did put their faith and trust in Christ, would you give them courage to make that known, to tell us, even this morning or even through an email or a letter, that I did that, I have done that. And I know that I've trusted Christ. And then, Lord, if anyone is still here, they're just like, I'm shaken. I'm convicted and I don't know. I'm not settled yet. I don't have peace in my heart. Then, Lord, would you let them talk to me? Or to a brother or sister in Christ here that they trust and not leave today until that is settled. And then, Father, would you let us, who are your children, delight in your love. It is real. It is undeniable. Thank you and your wisdom. You came up a way to save us that you did not compromise your holiness or your justice and that in your love Christ took it all upon himself. Thank you for our resurrected Lord. It is in his name we pray. Amen.